Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you are our God and our, our Father. And uh, Lord, as a loving Father, we ask that you would speak to us now, that you would, uh, as you have done in the Scriptures, that you would uh, condescend to us to speak in words that we can understand, to speak uh, loving words which build and encourage us, which strengthen us, which rebuke us and challenge us, uh, and which remind us of your tremendous love for us. Lord, empower those words, we ask it, by your Holy Spirit, for the sake of Jesus Christ and his church in uh, his name we pray. Amen. Well, we live uh, in an individualistic age, don't we? We live uh, in an age with individual concerns. We live in the iWorld, uh, the world of iPads and iPhones, and we take selfies and we put them up on our Instagram page uh, and we update our statuses so people can know about us. But it isn't just a commercial world and the and the on, uh, not just the commercial world and the online world, which is individual. But spirituality is individual as well. Faith is personal, not public. You do it by yourself, for yourself, in your own space, in your own time, and you ought not to mention that to anybody else. 
We look for churches based uh, on the chief criteria that it meets my needs. We serve in ways that suit me. And we seek for ways to worship that express who I am rather than who God is and the faith that we share with each other. So when we come to the Spirit then, it's easy for us in that context to become fixated on what the Spirit does to enrich my life, how the Spirit benefits me, what the gifts are that the Spirit gives to me. But the gift of the Spirit is not only about our individual Christian lives. In fact, it may not even primarily be about our individual lives. The gift of the Spirit is chiefly, I think, poured out by Christ, uh, not for our own personal enjoyment or for our own personal benefit, but for the sake of God's people, the church. We've seen in the series so far, going through the work of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is God, uh, one with the Father and the Son, and that through the Spirit, the Father and the Son and the Spirit come and make their home in us. We've seen that God speaks to us through the Spirit, through ordinary words, but authoritatively in the Bible. We've seen that the Spirit comes to us through the atoning death of Jesus and that the Spirit unites us with Jesus so that what is true of Him is true of us as well. And we've looked at some of the ways that the Spirit equips us for our Christian lives, but this morning we're focusing on the role that the Spirit has in equipping the church as a whole for the ministry as a whole uh, that the church has. Before we get into uh, those three ways, I think, that the Spirit equips the church, let me just say that when I say church, please don't hear only this church. Please hear the community of Christians throughout the world, the community of God's people. But at the same time, please also recognise that this church is where God has placed you, and so... The, way, the, the, the place that these things will primarily work out uh, is here with these people uh, that you know and meet here. Well, having said that then, the first work of the Spirit uh, in relation to the church is to make us the temple of the living God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 3.16, don't you know, uh, these Bible verses are in the leaflet, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? The you there is plural, it's God's spirit lives in yous all. He lives in all of you, not just you individually. Or in Ephesians 2.19, which we read just before, Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. We're a temple built on the foundation of the witness of the apostles and prophets in the Old and the New Testament, and Jesus Christ is the chief foundation stone from which everything else in the building derives its alignment. For us, I think the language of temple probably doesn't speak that loudly because we don't have many temples in our, in our world. There's one near where my parents live uh, in Wollongong. But for people in the first century, 
that language would have spoken to them very loudly because they knew what temples were about. Temples were places where gods lived, where you went to go and to meet that god, and temples were places where that god was served. You would go there and do your ceremony and your bits and pieces. So for the church to be described, for the people to be described as the temple of God means that the church, the community of believers, is the place where God dwells, where God is is met, and the place where God is served and honoured and praised. So we are the temple of God in the first place, in that God comes to dwell in us by His Holy Spirit. We've seen that in the past weeks. We've seen that God comes to dwell in us through the Spirit, that the Father and the Son make their home in us uh, because they are one with the Spirit and the Spirit comes to dwell in us. So it's a, that's a personal reality, but it's also a corporate reality. God's presence in the Spirit's... In, experience, God's presence in the uh, Spirit is experienced not only on our own, but more importantly, with others in the Christian community. So if we experience joy and comfort and blessings through the work of the Spirit in our lives as individuals, how much greater then is the joy and the comfort and blessings that we receive in the context of the Christian community with other Spirit-filled Christians? Sometimes uh, you get the impression that Some people don't need the church. They don't need other Christians because they've got the Spirit. I'm a Spirit-filled Christian, therefore I don't need the church. The church is like dead weight around their neck. But God, that, that simply isn't true because even though if you're deserted on a desert island, you can probably survive without other Christians, without being part of a church... That possibility shouldn't blind us to the truth that God has saved us for so much more. He's saved us for so much more than just being lone rangers, islands in the middle of a deserted ocean. God has saved us to be a people, to be a community who love each other and who love God. Behind much of the monastic tradition, that is the tradition of monks and so on, was the idea that you escape to solitude in order to draw closer to God. And I think, to a large extent, many of us still do that. We think that if we need to draw closer to God, the the place to do that is alone. Away from other people, away from the church. But actually... God says that's not true. God is found in the community of believers, in faithful churches gathered by faith around Jesus Christ and the gospel. So we're the temple of God individually, but also corporately in that God comes to dwell in us and among us by his Holy Spirit. But the other aspect of a temple is that it's also a place where God is served. So the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, the living stone, that is Jesus, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple of God is not a place or a building, it's not a a place, 
and it's not a building where God is worshipped and served, but the temple of God is the people of God. And it's the people of God where God is, among the people of God, where God is worshipped and served. Again, that's true at the individual level. Peter goes on to say that we ought to live such good lives among the pagans that they see what we do and how we live and they glorify God. So God is not only worshipped and served when we meet together on Sundays or we meet with other Christians in other contexts, but God is worshipped and served in our homes and in our workplaces and when we go on holidays. But again, it's important that we don't so focus on the individual aspect of that that we lose the corporate dimension. Notice that the picture is not, as one person has helpfully said, I think, the picture is not in, uh, of living stones scattered through a field, but of living stones being built up together into one building. We're not, again, we're not lone islands, but we're being built together into something. In other words, our worship and service of God in our individual lives can't be abstracted, it can't be separated from the fact that we're being built together into one temple by the Holy Spirit. The church is not individuals coming together once a week. It's not individual people with our own lives and then once a week we come together. And it's not a community of people that kind of breaks up and goes out on its own way. It's actually one entity, a living building, the temple of the living God, built together by the Spirit and stretching out, almost like dough, if you imagine stretching out dough. It's almost like this one lump of dough which is stretching out and all its tendrils, to mix metaphors terribly, all its tendrils working out into different areas of the world. We can't be individuals built up into maturity on our own and serving in our own little patch. Because it's only as we're built together, it's only as we're knitted together by the work of the Spirit that God is rightly worshipped and served elsewhere. So as this church grows in maturity in Christ, you'll grow in being a better witness at work. As this whole church grows in loving each other, you'll grow in being a loving family with loving parents and loving children. As this whole church grows in praising God, the praise of God will begin to flow out of here into every other area and aspect of your life. That's true of other forms of Christian community too. So, think of something like the Christian school. At the Christian school, the wider church is being built together into a living building, living stones which then reach out into the wider world. And it's true of other things too, something like Vision 100, uh, which is a network of Tasmanian churches which works together to train people and to, and to reach the loss for Christ. As we, as churches gathering together, are being built together, 
God is using us to reach out into a perishing world. But, that, uh, but the centrality then of that togetherness uh, is another reason why what we do here on Sundays, on Sunday mornings and in things like growth groups and, and, uh, and youth group, it's another reason why those things are important. It's because it's as we're built up together that we become corporately and individually a place where God is and where God is served. The first work of the Spirit then in relation to the church is to make us the temple of the living God, the place where God dwells and where God is served and worshipped. The second work of the Spirit in the church is to unite us with each other. Well, we've kind of already touched on that. But the Spirit unites us to Christ and by virtue of that fact, we're also united with each other. We're members of one body, the body of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes that reality saying, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And then again in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We are members of the body of Christ. Through the Spirit, Christ is the head, and we're the parts, the arms, the legs, the fingers, whatever else. We're united to Him, but because we're united to Him, we're also united to each other. So as we read in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body of one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Spirit unites us to Christ and to each other. The Spirit unifies us, not in the sense of making us all the same, but in the sense of uniting us in one gospel, under one Lord Jesus Christ, in one faith, through one Spirit, with one Father. Unity doesn't mean sameness. It doesn't mean we all enjoy the same things or we all go about things in the same way. Unity here means we share the same faith, love the same Father, trust the same Jesus, are filled with the same Spirit, built up, by this, in the same body and striving for the same purpose. We don't need to make ourselves united. Paul says we already are united. We've been united by the work of the Spirit. What we need to do is to work to preserve that unity. So it's not as though we're engaged and we're waiting to get married and what we need to do is to kind of unite ourselves more Actually, we're married and what we need to do is work hard not to be divorced. Do you see, we're already united. Now, maintaining unity in a marriage is hard enough with two people. It's even harder to do that with 250. It's so easy to destroy the unity of the church. I think that's a constant, constant temptation. And not deliberately. I don't think Satan ever tempts us and goes, let's destroy the unity of the church. 
But I think Satan says, why don't you stand on that issue? Make that an issue. And standing, by standing on that issue, we destroy the church. So many little opportunities to destroy and weaken the witness of the church. One of the ways we can destroy unity is by trying to make other people conform to us rather than to Christ. We make our ways the ways of the Messiah. Everybody needs to be like us and then the church will be saved. But actually we need to be like Jesus, don't we? Preferences become principles, possibilities become prescriptions. Maintaining unity requires extraordinary patience. Superhuman, (laughs) spirit-given patience. It often involves killing the puppies, as I like to say. One of my lecturers used to talk about killing the puppies in sermons, which means killing off the things that you hold most dearly, the things that you cherish the most. Maintaining unity in the church often requires killing the puppies. That is, it often means letting go of those things that you hold so precious and so dear. So it might mean letting go of, of something like a song that you hold really dear, that has, that has spoken to you so richly in the course of your Christian life, but it no longer speaks to anyone else. And so you might have to go, well, okay, we're not going to sing that song anymore, but I can still sing it at home, that's fine. Or you might hear some other song at some other church and you go, wow, I wish we could sing that song at our church. But actually you might have to go, well, you know, maybe that's never going to happen because that's probably not going to be the most helpful song for us. Those are hard things to do. Maintaining unity often means making painful sacrifices. But as Jesus says in John 17, our unity becomes a witness to the world of the truth of the gospel. The first work of the Spirit in relation to the church is to make us the temple of the living God, the place where God dwells and where God is served and worshipped. The second work of the Spirit uh, in the church is to unite us to each other by uniting us with Christ. And the last work, or at least the last work that we'll look at this morning uh, in relation to the church, uh, is that... The Spirit distributes gifts to the church for the building up uh, of the body. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And the grace which Christ has given is the gifts worked in us through the Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. There are all different kinds of gifts. I talked a few weeks ago as we were going through Acts about the gifts of prophecy and tongues. I'm not going to repeat that again this morning. If you're interested, you can uh, go back to that sermon on the uh, the website. 
But there are, those are the kinds of gifts that get the headlines. But not all gifts are what we might think of as being particularly spiritual. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit equipped Bezalel and Aholiab to craft the temple. They were expert craftsmen, expert builders. And in the same way, I think the Spirit can give people quite ordinary, ordinary uh, gifts to serve the church. Among the less coveted gifts that God gives to the church is the gift of administration. Uh, no one ever seems to have that one. Uh, and even less desired is the gift of singleness. But that is actually a gift uh, in 1 Corinthians, a grace of God given to the church for the service of the church. No gift is better than another. All gifts serve the church. At the uh, recent uh, Vision 100 training conference, I told, uh, I gave the illustration of playing in the orchestra, the, the wind orchestra that I play and playing the trombone. In an orchestra, there's all kinds of different parts, all kinds of different instruments. Uh, and the trombone is the least favoured instrument by composers. Uh, so all the glory instruments are the flutes and the clarinets uh, and the trumpets and the oboes and the bassoons, uh, you know, and the French horns. So pretty much everything but the trombone. And the role of a trombone player is to sit there counting bars, 80 bars, 90 bars, and then you play. I played in a recent, a recent concert, actually, uh, with, the, with, the, with a string orchestra. And I set out one whole piece, two whole movements, and the two movements that I did play in, I think I played less than half, something like that. So you can imagine what a rehearsal is like. It's basically sitting there going... And you bring a good book. That's what you do. But it's only as all those parts work together that the orchestra makes its beautiful sound, do you see? The trombone can't play all the time or the music wouldn't be beautiful. Don't tell anyone I said that. <laughs> but it's true. Its role is to bring colour and life and vibrancy and, 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 and loudness and, and dramatic effect to certain parts of the music. And you can't have that all the time, otherwise people's heads would be blasted off. But somebody needs to play that part, do you see? It's not less important or more important, it plays less. But it's still used by the composer to create this beautiful sound. And so it is in the church as well, that no gift is greater or, or lesser than another, but that God orchestrates all these different gifts to weave them together into this incredible symphony, which is the work of the church, bringing, serving God and bringing glory to God. And please notice that we don't choose our gifts. Christ chooses them for us. So whatever gifts you have, Jesus has given them to you because he thinks that you can use them to serve his church and his world. It's also worth saying, I think, that there's no good reason to believe that the gifts that God has given to you today will be the gifts that you always have. Nor, if you lack a gift today, that you will lack that gift for the rest of your life. 
I think God can give gifts and take gifts away as the church needs them. I love the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones, which he tells in his book, uh, Preaching and Preachers. He tells the story of David Morgan, or his Welsh, so I'm, I'm guessing it's David, David Morgan or something like that. Uh, he was a pastor in Wales at the end of the 19th century, and he was a very ordinary preacher. But one night, Morgan says, I went to bed just not, uh, that night, just David Morgan as usual, and I woke up the next morning feeling like a lion feeling like I was filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. He discovered that his preaching ministry had a whole new character. People were convicted of sin, people were converted in large numbers, and that extraordinary ministry went on for two years until, Morgan says, he went to bed again one night. He went to bed feeling like a lion, and I woke up the next morning and found that I'd become David Morgan once again. God gives gifts to the church in his wisdom, in his timing, for his purposes, not according to our schedules and our desires. And the purpose of those gifts, please note, according to Ephesians 4.12, is so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We can easily make the mistake, I think, of believing that God gives gifts to us for our own benefit rather than for the benefit of the church. What happens when we make that mistake? Well, if you think that God has given you gifts for your own benefit, then you'll most likely only serve when it's convenient to serve, rather than when it's most useful or when it has the possibility of doing the most good. Or even worse, if you believe that God has given you gifts for your own benefit, you won't use your gifts at all because you think they're yours to use as you please, rather than realising that they are a trust given by Jesus to be invested in his church. Or the purpose for your service will become distorted. So you serve because it helps you grow, rather than because it grows the church. Instead of service being an act of love, it becomes an act of self-interest. And when it stops being helpful to your growth, you stop serving. Someone asked me a great question the other day. Uh, They asked a question I think lots of people ask. They asked, do you need to enjoy something to keep serving in that ministry or in that way? I think that's a question that so many people ask. The answer that I gave was no. The reason is because we serve not for our own benefit but because Christ has given us those gifts to serve his church. Christ has lavished those gifts on us, not so that we can serve ourselves and our self-interest and keep ourselves safe from harm and difficulty and trouble and distress and anxiety and a bit of hard work, 
But Christ has lavished those gifts on us in the Holy Spirit for the sake of his church. Living stones being built up as one body. Deciding how and when to serve or whether to keep serving in a particular area is not a decision that you have to make on your own. Please ask people for advice. Get suggestions. Their advice might be, yes, you should keep serving in that way because God is doing a great work through you. You might look at your life and go, no, actually, I'm not doing any good here. I came across the other day a, uh, another cognitive disorder or whatever you like to call it called imposter syndrome, which besets people apparently who are doing their PhDs. Uh, and it, what imposter syndrome means is that you believe that you're not equipped for what you're doing and that it's only a matter of time that every, before everybody realises that uh, you're in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. Uh, and I think imposter syndrome besets people in the church. I'm in the wrong ministry. I'm doing the wrong thing. I don't have the right gifts. It's only a matter of time before people discover that actually I'm really destroying the church. So ask somebody whether that's true or not. Or their advice might be, no, you shouldn't take up that ministry. I don't think you're well suited to it. But please don't spend so much time trying to work out the best way to use your gifts that you never do anything at all. Or you ignore the things that need to be done uh, because they don't match what you think you should do. There's any a number of things that we ask uh, every, there's, sorry, there's a number of things that we ask every member of our church to commit to, and one of them is being involved in at least one ministry or, one, or on one roster. That's firstly because there's lots of things that need to be done, and we just would like people to help out. But it's also because serving in formal ways helps to train us for serving and using our gifts in informal ways. So if you don't serve in any ministry or you're not on any roster, then please, before you leave today, do that. Not as a box to be ticked, but as a way of using the gifts that God has given you to serve his church, to love each other and to build each other up in Christ. If you have arms and legs, you, can at, least, you at least have the gift of putting out chairs uh, or cleaning up after morning tea. And by the power of the Holy Spirit... God can empower that service to build up the church. But please don't make the mistake of thinking that using your gifts just means being involved in formal ministry. God gives gifts through the Holy Spirit to be used in all kinds of different ways and in all areas of our lives. Spiritual gifts are, as John Owen points out, powers of the age to come. I love that. What are the gifts that God gives us in his spirit? They're powers of the age to come. It's the, it's the power of God in the recreation of the world breaking into this world through the Holy Spirit to rebuild his people for the glory of Christ. How does the Spirit work in the church? The Spirit makes the church the community of believers, the temple of God, the place where God dwells and the place where God is served. The Spirit unites the church with Jesus and with each other and the Spirit gives gifts to the church to build us up in maturity in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for the church throughout all the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ who share our same faith, love our same Lord Jesus Christ, are children of the same Father and are filled with the same Spirit. And Lord, thank you that though we have never met them, we are joined with them in our struggle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers in the heavenly places. And thank you, Lord, that by your Spirit, as we are built up together, we are becoming a temple of you where you live and dwell and where you are served and honoured as you ought to be. Lord, we thank you for this church and we thank you for each other, for our shared faith, our shared love of Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would build us up together also, that we wouldn't be individual stones scattered through a field, but living stones built up together, united with each other in the service of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know what that means for each of us as individuals. Help us to know what that means for us as a community. Lord, help us to realise and acknowledge and see that uh, you have given us all we need by your Holy Spirit uh, for this church to be built up uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ. So, Father, build us up and keep us united, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.